1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking with Stefan X about his new book, Eating Drugs, Psychopharmaceutical Pluralism in India. This came out with NYU Press in 2014, and even though it's a case study that's very firmly centered on India, on Calcutta specifically, the insights of the book extend more broadly to Really, how to understand what it is to have a body and to use language, either visual, verbal, oral, to understand and to communicate about and with that body. And to use that understanding and kind of manage that understanding and that communication as a way to try to keep ourselves, make ourselves, make others healthy. What Stefan does is he takes us through various areas of the medical landscape in India and in Calcutta specifically, including Ayurveda, including homeopathy, biomedicine, as a way to give us an an appreciation of the kind of landscape that patients and doctors are working in when they are trying to conceptualize and figure out how to and communicate how to treat mental illness, depression some kind of illness of the mind. What winds up happening throughout the chapters of the book, as you'll hear, um, is that there's some major themes that recur throughout all of the areas of this landscape. Those themes include a concern with time and temporality, a concern with patient agency or lack thereof, a concern with the body and the belly specifically and a relationship between food and medicine, among many others. So it's a fascinating book. Um, It's really, really interesting. It's very clearly written, and I will let you get right to it because our conversation, because it's so fascinating, right? Our conversation was quite extensive. So thank you for listening. I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book and to look through it, to have an appreciation of all the details that we skipped over, right, that are very much um, richly described in the book. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Stefan X about his new book, Eating Drugs. Welcome to New Books in STS, Stefan, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today.
0: Thank you, Carla. It's great to be on the show.
1: Of course. So, Stefan, could you start us off by saying a little bit about how you came to the field and specifically, what brought you to medical anthropology and to India in particular? Well,
0: it was during my first uh, two years as a student of anthropology, um, I took a course in medical anthropology and the textbook that we read back then was by Cecil Hellman, Culture, Health and uh, Illness, and uh, which is a classic uh, textbook. And it, just contained a whole huge number of uh, case studies from around the world and all sorts of aspects of health and illness. Uh, But the one that really, really took me uh, was uh, on the question of somatization. So which somatization is a kind of a cultural patterning of uh, psychological and social distress uh, that turns into physical symptoms. So a classic case of somatization is if a a patient comes to a clinic complaining about uh, pain all over the body or headaches or weakness and the doctor then does an investigation, finds no particular physical uh, uh, problems there, and then diagnoses a, co- uh, a case of somatization, and very often that's uh, depression or some other uh, psychiatric diagnosis. And I found that the question of somatization extremely fascinating because I couldn't understand how it was possible that the body could lie about uh, the so-called true reasons of the distress and how there could be such a misrecognition also in a patient of psychological or interpersonal tensions uh, that they would become real felt uh, physical pains and aches and and discomforts. And it also fascinated me because it seemed to be a puzzle that uh, medicine alone would not be able to solve, but something that really needed uh, anthropological work uh, as well because it required uh, a lot of in-depth knowledge of a local culture and uh, because the expressions that were used are in local languages. So, uh, you know, it it needed this anthropological uh, perspective on it. And I have to say that after all these years, many years later, I definitely have huge problems with how the cold question of somatization is laid out nowadays in the literature and the book is also very much an engagement with this question of uh, is it really the case that uh, sort of what is uh, a problem of the mind is being turned into a problem of the body by the patient and then uh, properly accurately turned back into a problem of uh, the mind by the doctors with the help also of uh, psychopharmaceuticals uh, in that case but definitely so that was the question that fascinated me enough to uh, become a medical anthropologist. And uh, what brought me to India was a series of uh, accidents. I think most anthropologists will be very happy to admit that their projects are shaped by these happy coincidences. Uh, in my case, uh, I've always been somehow interested in East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia and um, Back uh, in my student days, I also just went on a long uh, journey and uh, around uh, various places there. And uh, from all the places I visited, India just fascinated me the most. And uh, I really fell in love with the place and decided to do my PhD on it as well. Um, but then sort of this particular study came out from from a very different angle. I was really um, more interested back then in how people uh, experience the effects of environmental pollution onto their health. And Mm -hmm. so the initial stage of the project for my PhD was to go to uh, a specialist clinic for lung diseases in Calcutta because uh, I wanted to find out how people reflect on air pollution, causing respiratory problems, and also how that would make people reflect on the ill effects of modernization more broadly. That was the interest that I had. And in these interviews with people diagnosed with lung diseases, um, all they talked about more or less was their stomach, food digestive imbalances and uh i was also just taken by surprised by that this this immense focus on what is actually going on in the belly basically and even with patients who are diagnosed with lung diseases that they seem to be far more interested in talking about digestion than about uh breathing or anything like that and it's was this uh strong focus on on everything having to do with food and with digestion that I then uh, turned into the major part of the project as well. And then also later on, uh, I got really interested in this question of uh, psychopharmaceuticals. And one thing that really kickstarted me on this one was that I read about, uh, you know, other anthropologists writing about the uses of antidepressants in the United States and how, Uh, Prozac in the U.S. would be uh, such a well-known drug that uh, people would be able to just uh, say, yes, this is an antidepressant drug, and they would be able to say uh, at least uh, two or three people that they would know personally who are actually uh, taking on the drug. Uh, uh, who are on the drug at any moment in time. And that struck me also as, as so absolutely different from uh, my experience in India where uh, you wouldn't have any sort of public engagement with uh, antidepressants or psychopharmaceuticals or really uh, mental illnesses in any recognizable way. There's sort of the odd newspaper report maybe on it, but it, it doesn't have that uh, public uh, salience and, and discourse to it at all. And I was at the same time really struck by the fact that India is one of the world's largest producer of uh, generic versions of these uh, psychopharmaceuticals. And that seemed to be very odd to me that uh, India could be on the one hand producing all the drugs, but then it seemed also when you read WHO publications and and, uh, the whole literature, and it seems to be that India is this place of of yoga and meditation and no one in the world uh, there has ever seen uh, an antidepressant drug before. And that, uh, you know, that's this huge discrepancy uh, brought me also to this, to this uh, question of uh, the uses of antidepressants in India today. And, uh, you know, in, in the book also, then I, I try to broaden this also to an anthropology of pharmaceuticals, uh, which then kind of tries a comparison of not just biomedical and uh, psychiatric medications, but also Ayurvedic and homeopathic medications and how all of these different types of medications have different cosmologies underlying them. And at the same time, what kind of processes are going on that bring these types of medication in dialogue with each other and produce uh, very new, uh, even you know, new uh, drug effects themselves.
1: Great. Thank you. That's fabulous. Um, and one of the things, um, just kind of incidentally, taking um, a page from or taking off from what you just mentioned, one of the things that I really appreciated here as someone who's a historian of medicine and medical and um, sort of pharmaceutical culture in China specifically um, I really appreciated the fact that you 're emphasizing that these different um, medical cultures right these different homeopathic and Ayurvedic and biomedical and popular medicines um, they 're distinct in some ways, but the blurries are the, the boundaries are very very blurry right these aren 't distinct medical systems and sort of they 're part of a conversation that 's um, very much happening all the time and that 's certainly happening throughout the book and you 're bringing us into that conversation. In a way that's, I think, a, a really beautiful reminder that um, for any individual body and person who is seeking medical or healing care, um, there's a, there these are this is a plural kind of environment, right? It's not necessarily a choice between one firmly delineated kind of medical um, system and another firmly delineated kind of medical system. So it's that blurriness that I think is really um, useful and generative and important. To remember um, when we're reading your book, and I thank you for that because I think you're making that point really compellingly here. Mm. So,
0: yeah, I think that uh, you know, for India, it really is this uh, situation of uh, a much stronger competition between different kinds of uh, medicines, also than you would have in North America, maybe, or in Europe, where biomedicine is so firmly established, and in India partly also because people have to pay out of pocket most of the time for the treatments that they receive and so there is this situation that uh, this this choice also leads people into you know the medical practices of very different kinds of healers far more i think than uh, in, in what we would be used to uh, in, uh, in, in Europe or uh, North America. And at the same time, these healers are also dependent on uh, the patients uh, staying with them, coming back to them. Uh, they, they're dependent on their uh, fee payments far more. And so they even if they're in a very entrenched, powerful position, they have to actually listen to what the patients are interested in. And uh, when these patients pick up all sorts of ideas, from one medical system and then bring them to the other medical system, uh, they have to, the, the whoever, the doctor, the healer there has to respond to that as well. And I think that's that's a situation that is, is very, very powerfully present in India.
1: That's right. Um, so one of the things that the book does really beautifully from the very beginning is to show us the kinds of technologies that make that transit and that movement um, across and... Um, through medical cultures and medical systems uh, possible. And one of those um, things that's happening is metaphor. So I want to ask you a little bit about that, but I want to kind of contextualize this for listeners first. Okay, so in order to get to um, a conversation about how and why metaphor is important, let's back up a step and talk about sort of what the stakes are and what one of the key kind of problems is that the book explores. So a key problem explored in the book is described um, as uh, in the way that I'll uh, mention right now in the book. There are drugs that are meant to help people feel better. The doctors who prescribe these drugs might believe that they work while their patients don't. So in explaining the drugs to their patients, there's a dilemma that arises: Should the doctors use medical terminology that they themselves use, which might be interpreted as more honest, more straightforward by some people, or should they translate the description into terms that are more comfortable and familiar to the patient, which might um, be interpreted by some as obfuscation, right? As sort of um, changing the nature of what they're telling them. So and. When we're considering this dilemma at the same time, what are the practical and ethical consequences of each decision? So, the book is going to explore this problem and explore this dilemma by leading us through the various layered and sort of interwoven ways that a patient is going to experience and explore and that healers are going to experience and explore this very complicated and very plural medical landscape that you've um, just described to us a few minutes ago. Now, one way of translating these, especially psychopharmaceuticals, right, to a patient is by using metaphor. Now this is described at the beginning of the book. It's described at the end of the book, and it's something that um, really helps motivate the title: eating drugs. One kind of translation and one kind of metaphor that's used specifically is to call psychopharmaceuticals mind food. Okay, and at the very beginning of the book, you take us into um, a kind of a psych ward where you're following a doctor, Doctor Roy, who uses, who makes the decision to conceptualize and describe pharmaceuticals as mind food. Okay, so let's start there. Um, For you, what's important about metaphor specifically to what's going on in the book, and why mind food specifically?
0: So um, to start with mind food, it's really um, the English translation of this Bengali expression, monar kabar and uh, mon is a Bengali term for mind but it's a really interesting term uh, because it's not uh, although it's etymologically related to English mind, the mon and mind and mens in Latin and so on, they're all from the same uh, language group but in Bengali uh, mon is a term that also means something like the heart mind so it it's not just about the cool, rationally thinking, uh, calculating mind, like in the Cartesian tradition. But uh, mon for Bengalis is, is is a heart mind where also it's feelings and emotions and personal opinions are encapsulated in that. So that's one part of the expression mon, and kabar is the other part. And kabar um, in, means basically everyday edible. Meals, food, usually cooked food, what you would have on an everyday basis. And again, uh, in Bengali language, you have a huge range of terms for various kinds of food. So it's um, in many ways much more differentiated in that regard than in English, where you have food, basically. And then you would qualify that with uh, some other terms. But uh, in, in Bengali, if you say kabar, then you, everyone means, ah, this is sort of the the homely, everyday uh, Food—it's not the food that you would offer deities. It's not the food that uh, has been left over by someone. It's not uh, the food from the day before. It's kind of your your good everyday meal, basically. And and what the um, you know what I've observed the Calcutta psychiatrists doing when they um, explain uh, the, the action of psychopharmaceuticals to patients and how they also try to convince patients that these are uh, good to take, don't worry about them, it's everyday, it's easy. Uh, That's the expression that they would use, mine's food. Um, And so What they do is, you know, with this work of metaphor that they're employing, they're just uh, building, you know, taking all the resistance and doubts and worries that a patient might have about, for example, the long-term intake of a drug um, or the, the, the worries of uncontrollable and unforeseeable side effects and things like that. They take that and already try to... Uh, uh, mitigate for the sort of negative um, uh, connotations of that by just calling it uh, Kavar and it's the food that the mind uh, would um, take in and uh, where this idea then emerges from the metaphor that they're using and also when patients would be asking for further details and they would say well your mind is being starved of nutrients there's something you know you the mind needs good nutrition to keep going and all that you're missing in your brain is good nutrition. So what we're giving you here in the form of these uh, uh, tablets and pills uh, and capsules is nothing other than just the sort of everyday wholesome nourishment um, of the mind. And, uh, you know, by them using this expression, and and really you could say that the entire book is an attempt to explain uh, why Monarchabar as an expression in this particular context, when used uh, to uh, a bengali speaking patient, sort of makes such absolutely perfect sense somehow and, and just seems to just check all the boxes of why that would feel actually really good to to take these drugs and you wouldn't ha- need to have any fear for that. And th- this is what fascinated me about metaphor, basically, is this incredible power That this expression can have in um, a doctor-patient relationship and how the very terminology that is being used um, maybe by a professional psychiatrist is transformed into, it also needs to be transformed into something more. Uh, wholesome or acceptable for patients there's always of course the idea among the doctors that patients uh, in India are as they say all the time again and again, well, most of the patients are illiterate, they have no idea uh, their education in this country is so bad. Uh, what can we do? you know if we would tell them about neurotransmitters and serotonin and all of these things they would not understand, so it one way of making them understand and of, uh, of 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 uh, overcoming any sort of superstitions because it, the resistance against the psychopharmaceuticals is seen as a superstition from their side is just to transform them and the way you transform them is by by using these metaphors and I think that uh, you know the mona Kabar as a particular metaphor is a particularly ingenious one. Uh, they, there's a whole uh, bunch of other metaphors and ways of explaining. Uh, the action of these drugs um, to patients that are being used. One of them uh, very popular is also just to compare them to insulin in the Mm -hmm. treatment of diabetes. Um, So, you know, just that there is something missing in the body uh, in some people uh, in the case of diabetes and insulin is this a drug that you need to take in from the outside on a regular basis, probably until the rest of your life in order to make up for that shortcoming in your body and to rebalance the body and to uh, nourish it in this particular um, kind of way. And so that would be another metaphor that uh, is uh, very commonly used and and, and popular, anything that has to do with the nourishment. But so it's really the the bottom line is that um, the, Doctors expect such resistance against the, for example, the use of a psychopharmaceutical, which is uh, such a threatening, uh, scary term, and uh, you know, which they see as the patients would never understand what this stuff is. So basically, we need to transform it metaphorically into something that they're happy to to eat, to swallow.
1: Right. And this is actually um, bringing out one of the key arguments of the book, right? Is this argument. That patients are suspicious um, in Calcutta of psychopharmaceuticals, based on a kind of suspicion of this, what you call a magic bullet model of drug effects coming from psychopharmacology. And so the book becomes very much this very detailed but very beautifully written exploration of how doctors are managing that suspicion. And really, by the time we get to the end of the book, and we'll we'll revisit this, um, what the ethical consequences. Of those management techniques, including metaphor, right? Um, mm. it, what the ethical consequences are. And this has consequences not just for how we understand what's happening in this particular case, but also more broadly, um, I think, how we understand um, what's happening given the global pharmaceutical environment beyond Calcutta. So there's this, it, it, the structure of the book um, is very, um, very, very, very well designed in terms of. You know, laying out the major stakes and the major problem and taking our hand and guiding us very carefully through this landscape to return to the question at the end um, in a way that makes it much more understandable than it would be otherwise, right? So, Mm. this idea of mind food. Um, that you just described really helpfully, and thank you, this is very much based on an overall notion, and you take us into this in the first chapter, of the belly as what you call the somatic center of good health. Now, I won't ask you to talk too much about this because you've already um, described this really helpfully for us, but I just want to flag this for listeners. The first chapter um, is really a very detailed exploration of this notion, um, the connection between the belly and health. Um, the relationship between this and MON, right, or mind, um, and how patients navigate between, in popular medicine, the belly and the mind as kind of interacting forces in terms of the maintenance um, of good health and overall bodily wellness. You also talk here about something we'll come back to later, which is sort of the way that this is complicated by the particular kind of body that's produced by modernity and all the kinds of pollution and all the kinds of um, ways of being in the world that modernity um, has created. Now, one of the things that's really interesting um, that comes up very much at the beginning, and I'm going to follow this through, um, is a concern with the kind of, at least as I read it, the kind of translation that needs to happen, not just across language, not just using metaphor, but also in terms of time and experiences of time. And in every single one of the chapters, and this begins in chapter one, but it's going to be something we see throughout, there is an attentiveness to the temporalities of health and the ways that patients and their doctors in these different um, areas of the landscape are managing and are translating across those temporalities. In the first chapter, this takes a form of a concern with the temporality of drug effects, right? Choosing between and managing fast versus slow working medicines, um, how this correlates with or engages with the diet. And we're going to see different ways that temporality and concerns and translations thereof um, recurs and manifests throughout the book. Now, one of the temporalities that becomes really important is a concern with past and present and a concern with moving between historical and cosmological time. And this is very much a concern that we see coming up in the second chapter. The second chapter looks at Ayurvedic practices in Calcutta. And I think probably um, the the most helpful thing for listeners would be to now hit this back to you. Um, You have a really wonderful account here of some of the most important ways that Ayurveda is changing in India India and in Calcutta specifically. For you, what are some of the most important ways that Ayurveda and Ayurvedic practice in Calcutta have transformed? And what are the consequences of those transformations that are particularly important for understanding the work that you're doing in this chapter?
0: So Ayurveda, um, as the classic Indian system um, of medicine. It's usually also called like uh, the oldest. Uh, It has these Sanskrit sources. And yeah, when you talk about Ayurveda, you have to talk about uh, history and and long, long time spans, almost invariably. Um, And also for the Ayurvedic healers in Calcutta, uh, this sort of historical uh, transformation is of enormous importance. So it's something that they always reflect on and uh, sort of comparing where they are now to uh, what has uh, been going on before. And as you also rightly pointed out, there's this often this flip from a kind of historical time frame where you would say this happened in uh, the 19th century to something like... Almost like a cosmological uh, time frame where uh, Ayurvedic healers would also talk about, you know, the, the days when it was possible for uh, uh, people to, for example, one of them talked about how uh, people in the past, almost like a cosmological uh, age old past, would be able to take the stomach out of their body, uh, wash it in the clear, of the river and put it back in, you know, like that they had such a total control, not just over their body, but also over their mind, basically, that uh, also would prevent them from having so many of the diseases uh, that people today are suffering from, the whole disturbance of the mind that people are suffering from today was different, that um, you know, one of the big transformations other that they see is, uh, in terms of the sheer range of Ayurvedic, uh, therapies that, um, you can find in the classic uh pretty texts uh, and also therapies such as Panchakarma, which is one of these very famous uh for, for Ayurveda, um, where, you know, the body would be uh, subdued to all sorts of violence, almost violent interventions, you know purging and and bloodletting and just sort of letting it all out somehow. Uh, Like you really sort of would turn the body upside down almost in these therapies and how the doctors uh, that I talk to today would often perceive this as almost impossible because the ill effects of modernization have made people so weak and enfeebled and uh, sort of so sensitive to pain and so on that they wouldn't even be able to uh, apply the whole range of uh, therapies that would uh, once have been uh, possible, so mm-hmm. there's this constant uh, harking back of the the healers to you know what was not just happening historically, but but in an almost uh, mythical time before, and uh, it has ramifications on all levels. Also, for example, that um, in earlier times the herbal. Uh, uh, remedies produced by Ayurveda would be far more powerful because uh, the plant material that it was based on uh, would be purer and and not subject to pollution, and uh, you would have, uh, you know, just much much more potent, powerful medications there. And again, sort of under um, in modern. Time, something like that is not as easy anymore. So yeah, with the mm-hmm. Ayurvedic healers, this is very striking uh, um, general and constant comparison of almost like this g- degenerated, effeebled moment of the present and uh, the glorious times of the past. And that includes, you know, Ayurveda as a discipline. So against uh, this notion that, Um, You know, what I very much expected, that um, there is this global revival and resurgence and and prominence of Ayurveda that you have today. So that if you are coming from a Western country, you would think that Ayurveda is in full bloom. And uh, it's brilliant because uh, if these clinics are opening up in London or New York, then surely in India itself, it must be even... More so, but um, the doctors that I talked to had this, this general sense of, of decline and that everything sort of went uh, downhill, mm-hmm. really, um, with with modern modernity.
1: Right. So the chapter takes us into some of the very specific ways that these transformations happen, right? I mean, there have been changes, as you describe here, in terms of training, in terms of the language of Ayurveda, in terms of patient-physician relationships. But throughout all of these changes, there has been one constant that you describe here, and this is the centrality of food and digestion. This digestion um, understood here um, variously, not necessarily in um, straight-up anatomical terms. Now, this becomes really important to the overall work that the book is doing because, as you know, we'll, we sort of go back to this idea of mind food, the book is very much concerned with the ways that the belly and the stomach um, and food are related to concerns with and ways of managing psychological problems. So you talk here um, about the liver, right, as a kind of head office and source of problems in Ayurveda, and you talk about psychological problems as being one of many kinds of problems that are located in the liver. So broadly speaking, this is a way to help us understand, I think, how digestion and psychology are related um, in this context and in this part of the book. So I, I just love if you could talk a little bit about that, sort of in this context of Ayurveda, as it's practiced today, as you have access through your ethnography. What's the important connection between digestion and psychology, and what are the consequences of that connection for what you're arguing in this part of the book?
0: So basically for an Ayurvedic physician um, and you can see this also in all the consultations uh, with patients, it always starts with digestive health or not health uh, so it's the starting point of everything, basically, uh, and this comes from the notion that really um people are you know nothing other it, there's this notion of a kind of fluid body that is constantly changing also it's porous it's uh Uh, Changing with what kind of food you're eating and what kind of weather is going on at the moment and uh, the qualities also of who you are eating with at a particular moment and if you eat slowly or fast or, um, you know, what what you're doing. Basically, the food and the quality of your digestion makes you who you are. And that's why um, the consultations always start with, Uh, digestive, uh, you know, the state of your digestion at a particular point in time. And and they take it from there. So in that way, if uh, digestion, and there's this very elaborate, very beautiful, really interesting uh, Ayurvedic theory also on just how um, food, when it's taken into uh, the body, is being transformed step by step through a whole series of digestive fires, So it's like an, an alchemical process really. And it's almost literally, it's an alchemical process the way that it's imagined that you have one, uh, a kind of gross, uh, nourishment and that is being refined by one, uh, digestive fire into the next higher level. And, uh, a higher level. A higher level. Where is the gross products of that are uh, sort of separated from that? And just like in an alchemical process, where you achieve, uh, where you can make gold, basically from uh, some some uh, lower grade uh, metals. In the same way, in Ayurveda, it's imagined that you can, through the digestive process, produce this this highest level uh, substance, uh, which is then. Uh, you know usually translated as semen funnily enough, so there 's the whole section in um, the book also where I talk about this this very commonly uh, described uh, um, and what 's being dubbed as sort of a uh, uh, culture bound syndrome in India dat, which is mm-hmm. semen loss and uh, My point there being also that much of the literature that's been written by psychiatrists on uh, this dot phenomenon. And then, again, we're back at somatization because that is just being subsumed as just another form of, uh, you know, expressing uh, something like depression, for example. But what that literature really totally misses out on is that uh, semen in that way must be seen as a digestive uh, product itself. And you need to understand the whole cosmology of digestive processes that uh, are going on there and then only does it make sense that uh, losing semen for example is a form of uh, uh, feeling weak or feeling tired and all that because what you're being deprived of is sort of the the most refined, most powerful essence of the entire digestive process um, that has led to that. And so sort of if that's the basic idea of it, and you can find that, again, in the classic s- scriptures, but it's also something that I would think it's not – you can't find a lot of people talk at any great – in any great detail in a popular level about the same thing. But the general notion of it, I think, is extremely uh, widespread also. And, and uh, the lay people in, um, in Calcutta would uh, uh, you know very easily talk about um, that um, as well. So if you have that principle, then it's a very small step also of thinking that anything that has to do with uh, the mind uh, is ultimately also based on some kind of digestive uh, uh, problem and is definitely connected to that. And so, you know, it, it kind of ties back to what I'm laying out in the chapter on uh, popular practices and uh, experiences of the body, sort of what this mind-belly uh, relationship um, is, but also that, you know, there's there's the general dualism of the mind and the belly, but also, of course, they are very strong, uh, interactions um, between them. So, mm-hmm. but that's ultimately really it's it's about also that 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 Arya Vida, um, has absolutely no problems also in. Um, seeing the mind as amenable to being medicated uh, in various ways. Because what you're doing with the medication is you're taking a particular kind of food into your body and it's being uh, digested in this way. And there's a very uh, large and thriving um, part of the Ayurvedic drug manufacturing Um, the Ayurvedic pharmaceuticals business in India, which is basically about tonics for the mind. So you see an awful lot of uh, advertisements for, you know, give this particular tonic uh, to your uh, child and they will be superior in school, or uh, you see advertisements for uh, tonics that are specifically for older people so that they remember very well and that their mind keeps on functioning on the same sort of level. And so basically for Ayurveda, there's no problem in also thinking that the mind can be medicated uh, through these substances.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And I think one of the themes that um, has been coming up repeatedly and certainly comes up in this part of the book is this blurry distinction between food and medicine. And, and this is important, I think, just to mark in this chapter, in part because one of, the, one of the quotations that makes up part of the title of this chapter, you are the medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if part of what you as a patient are doing in your everyday life to eat and to sort of nourish yourself, is very much bound up in the notion of what you're doing to medicate yourself, right? If Medicine is food and food is medicine. This brings up an important um, aspect of another overarching theme throughout the book, which is patient agency and patient responsibility. So one of the concerns, I think, in a lot of the chapters in different ways is the extent to which patients are made responsible or held responsible for their own Health, psychiatric and otherwise, or psychological and otherwise, through their daily practices because food and medicine are so blurry, um, kind of grading into one another, but also the, um, the agency of patients to actually have some say in what's, you know, what's happening in this medical landscape and the ways that kind, different kinds of physicians are assuming or precluding the possibility of that agency. So that's something that I just want to kind of mention because it very much comes up here and it's something that we'll see coming up. Throughout the chapters, and really um, again recurring as a focus at the end of the book. So, we've talked um, up to now about these different um, areas of the medical landscape, right? We talked about popular practice, we talked about Ayurveda, and in each case, the connections between the mind and the belly, between psychological health and something having to do with food and digestion. And this is also something that comes up in the next chapter, which takes us into the next area of this medical landscape. Now, this is a chapter that looks very closely at homeopathy. This is the second most popular type of medicine in Bengal. Now, I won't ask you to talk at any length about the nature of homeopathy, right? Uh, listeners can go to the chapter for that. There's a very detailed description here of, uh, the, kind of the history of homeopathy. This was invented by a German physician, Samuel Hahnemann. And There's descriptions of why it's become um, so successful in India and in Calcutta specifically, and also why it's received comparatively little attention from medical anthropologists. Now, this is a kind of practice, very, very broadly speaking, right, just to kind of touch on some um, major elements that you bring up here um, that is based in terms of its drug remedies on a principle of like cures like, um, the kind of the principle that patients should receive very low doses of homeopathic drugs is very important, um, and you talk about the importance of um, a certain way of thinking about and prescribing simples, right? Individual um, substances as a way to nourish and help keep um, sort of uh, help keep the patient's vital force as healthy as it can be. So. One of the, um, to kind of link this up to the overall thread of the book, you focus here on the ways that homeopathic physicians are then dealing with psychiatric problems, how they are conceptualizing the root of um, mental health and the ways to treat and manage that um, aspect of mental health through the particular kinds of um, remedies that are used by homeopathic doctors. So let's just focus on that. Can you tell us a little bit? about that. Um, What's important for you about the ways that homeopathic doctors are conceptualizing and treating psychiatric or psychological issues in terms of fitting this with the overall argument of the book?
0: Yeah, I was really, really fascinated by homeopathy, uh, again, because i didn't expect this at all, you know, from my readings before I set off to do fieldwork in India, I thought everyone was uh, running to an Ayurvedic healer all the time, and uh, I didn't have homeopathy on my radar at all, and it was really uh, quite a shock to find that uh, Calcutta is uh, called um, the world capital of homeopathy also and that there are more doctors there, more hospitals, The National Institute of Homeopathy is there than anywhere else. So this is a very, very, very important uh, medical practice and also something that people practice in their homes and it, as you said, you know, it has this really interesting history reaching back to the 19th century where you can say that uh, homeopathy has been in India for uh, as long, basically, as it has been in in Europe. So it's not something that was imported at a very late stage. But you can find the first uh, sort of, uh, traces of homeopathic practice in the first half of the uh, 19th century, even in India. And um, I found that so incredibly fascinating. And I also found fascinating just to realize at some point that um, you know when you Or in India, everyone talks about allopathy, and I'm going to go to an allopath. And I had never really heard that term. I thought, you know, I I would think I'm going to a doctor, assuming that really that's what, uh, you know, you mean. uh, That, that, you know, a biomedical doctor, basically, that's the person you're going to, but not an, an allopath. And just realize that actually... Allopathy and and the allopath are terms that come from homeopathic criticisms of uh, biomedicine as it was practiced uh, uh, during the 18th or 19th century, has been coined by Hahnemann, the inventor of, of homeopathy, and that it was actually a very derogative term that is being used so homeopathy being uh the science of curing like with like and that's the good way and the rational way of doing it whereas allopathy is sort of builds up this uh this opposition uh to the body and the symptoms and is always at war basically and uh Therefore, it has all of these these uh, terrible side effects, and is a medicine that is ultimately irrational from their point of view. So that this term also allopathy um, has taken total root in in everyday uh, language, and also that the Indian doctors, the biomedical doctors, would always refer to themselves as as allopaths and uh, what they're doing, allopathy. So the the impact. And the cultural general salience of homeopathy, I think, can hardly be overestimated. And it, you can also find all of these traces of how people make sense of allopathic medications as a, an opposition, as a foil as the opposite of allopathic medication. So for example, uh, if an allopathic medicine is like a, a quick fix, it works very fast, then the homeopathic cure is slow, but uh, the allopathic drug uh, only has a superficial effect on it. It might just sort of cut off uh, the leaves of the plant, whereas the homeopathic drug takes out the roots of the uh, plant as you know, the disease is being imagined. So homeopathy is just, uh, incredibly important. Um, and what always struck me about homeopathy is also is this enormous self confidence, uh, that the doctors have there. So quite opposite to, uh, the Ayurvedic healers who were always like, Oh, we had this golden day, uh, before, and now it's all, uh, downhill. The homeopaths by contrast, they feel like they're totally on an upswing. That's, uh, what they're doing is absolutely great. It's getting better all the time in some ways, and not in all ways, but, but overall that, that homeopathy has this very established place. And part of that is, going back to your question really, is this confidence in just being able to treat absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Because um, the way that the homeopathic drugs uh, would work are never, you know, this is sort of through the dilution process on the potentization of the drugs uh, already the drug is so uh, ethereal, so fine, so subtle that uh, it when you take it into your body, you don't even need to swallow it. You can just uh, rub it on your skin or you might just uh, inhale it, for example, and it will still do the work that it does because it's so fine. And that is also again seen as um, the reason why it for a homeopath, there's absolutely no problem in treating all sorts of mental problems with homeopathic uh, medications because, um, you know, there's no opposition even between the mind, gross mind and the, uh, sorry, the, um, you know, the, the fine mind and the gross body as such because all of the medications really work on the mind. And, um, you know, this is what they call the vital force, which is this, Again, sort of uh, very old homeopathic uh, concept um, from Hanemann, but uh, you know having all sorts of really interesting connotations in the history of medicine there in uh, in, in Germany. But anyhow, it's uh, something that they, they don't have a fear of treating anything. So as one of the doctors. Who is a very very prominent uh, homeopath and who has a role in uh, shaping national policies also in in Delhi on homeopathy? He was like in an interview with me. He was like, "Look, uh, homeopathy can treat the ill effects of pollution. Uh, there's a child not learning well in school, and there's a husband who is an alcoholic. You know, whatever it is, we've got some kind of uh, uh, treatment for it. There's no boundary for uh, what can do.
1: Mm -hmm. And there's this really interesting, um, just to kind of touch on and highlight the recurring theme of time and temporalities, right? There's this really interesting discussion in this chapter where you are taking on something that you just mentioned a little bit earlier, this idea of um, the of the, the long time that it can take for homeopathic therapies to work, right, relative to allopathic uh, medicines and therapies, and the ways that doctors are managing patient expectations while at the same time staying true to what they feel are the efficacious um, you know, results of this long-term, very subtle homeopathic therapy. And you talk about their use of placebos as a way to manage patient expectations and also administer Um, drugs in a way that is attentive to these very different temporalities and ways of experiencing the body and time that patients are coming to them with and that have to accord with the therapeutic effects of these drugs. So again, placebos and the kind of bodies and time are um, really, really interesting aspects of what's happening in this chapter for listeners who are specifically looking for discussions of that um, kind of issue. Now, as we move through the book, you know, of course there's a lot more about homeopathy that we can talk about. It's a fascinating chapter. Um, but you know, there's also another chapter that comes after this that takes us into yet again another aspect of this medical landscape and medical marketplace that patients are navigating as they are dealing with um, the engagement between, food medicine and their uh, and psychology in the mind, and that is psychiatry. So Chapter 4 takes us into the ways that Calcutta psychiatrists are positioning themselves with respect to popular beliefs about psychopharmaceuticals, general physicians, practitioners of non-biomedical treatments, and the pharmaceutical industry. So this is taking us in, right back to the beginning in a way um, where we were first introduced to this Dr. Roy at the beginning of the book, who's using this metaphor of mind food to explain pharmaceuticals, and now that we've learned about you know the other aspect of the landscape that he is helping his patients navigate by in, using this kind of metaphor, now we can come back to that case and the overall context in which he's working and really understand it in a new way. So you've already, um, and we've already talked a little bit about some of the things that are happening in this part of the book, right? The pharmaceutical industry in India. Um, You talk here in this book as well about the ways that pharmaceutical corporations are working to shape popular notions of depression in order to market and to sell pharmaceuticals. So there's a really interesting discussion of that in this chapter. But to bring us back to this overarching theme that um, is really throughout the book, the connection between food, the belly, the stomach, and the mind, let's talk a little bit about that point of intersection as it manifests here. And here you talk about something called Bengali bowel obsession, right? Um, So this is something that you introduced to us as a way of helping us understand um the kind of the centrality of the bowels, the centrality of the belly and of digestion to patients who are coming to psychiatrists like Dr. Roy and others, um, and sort of the ways that these Calcutta doctors are dealing with that language, those expectations when they're trying to help patients deal with and treat um, mental health issues. So let's talk about that. Bengali bowel obsession, and the ways um, for you that are most interesting, for these doctors to navigate the somatic, the belly, and the mind. What do you find most interesting about what's going on here?
0: Well, again, it's the doctors basically uh, and the psychiatrists are basically saying exactly the same as all of the other. I also did research on other Forms of uh, you know other fields of biomedicine, uh, including gastroenterology, in uh, Calcutta, and uh, there's this very general notion that basically all of the biomedical doctors have all of the Bengali patients being so incredibly. Bowel obsessed, and basically that's just their way of making sense of, you know, this this focus on digestion that we talked about so much um, so far already. So for them, it's just like this weirdly uh, traditional, long-standing um, focus on the bowels and on food and digestion is sort of what makes uh, what is so typical for them for the Bengali patient, and like they they had endless examples of how. Uh, patients would come into their practice and then sort of when they had a very clear case of something that was a psychiatric problem or uh, some other maybe physical problem but it was always that uh, ultimately it had to be in the mind of the patients it had to be um, to do had to do with uh, digestion and and how basically the doctors are trying to make sense of that themselves and also how um, you know they then as as psychiatrists had to deal with that on a daily basis. So, uh, you know, making fun of it was a large part of that. Or uh, also uh, another psychiatrist sort of saying, uh, you, know, I, you know, whenever a patient starts again with uh, their belly this and their belly that, or um, there's another very common expression, uh, which is gas. Uh, so there's this notion of gas somehow traveling all over the body and it kind of gas goes up uh, to your brain and puts pressure on your brain, and that's where you get the headaches from, or the gas is doing something else, and that sort of makes you sad. Um, that, um, you know, the psychiatrist would just say, you know, if you even start with this, you know, I'm not gonna have any of that, you know, I'm uh, just shut up on that, I'm not gonna listen to you. So, uh, you know, it's trying to make sense of how this particular group of doctors, who themselves, of course, uh, are uh, almost. Most entirely Bengalis, so something that they themselves have grown up with are then making sense from why the patients are talking in that way. And also this is of course very important for understanding then you know how they would deal creatively or deceptively or however you want to put it with these notions that the patients bring to them and how they have to or they feel they have to transform it in order to you know to get to the truth of what is going on and the truth in their mind is really that uh, this particular patient does not suffer from some kind of digestive imbalance but this is a clear case of depression and if they give if they manage to give that antidepressant drug for example, to the patient, then uh, this this whole uh, bowel case will just clear up as if by magic.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, we've already talked a little bit about um, the use of metaphor here, right? So I won't um, bring that up again in any detail except to just mention that in addition to this idea of mind food and to likening um, uh, psych- psychopharmaceuticals to um, nutritional supplements, right, the likening, um, the kind of supplementary use of psychopharmaceuticals, to diabetes, to insulin. You also describe other kinds of metaphorical um, means of management here, and that includes comparisons to nature, to the Ganges River, to fairy tales, to everyday over-the-counter drugs. Now, you you know, kind of managing patient worries and whether you've mentioned sort of you might call this deception, you might call it something else. Well, the book does take a position on this, right? And as we come to the end of the book, we come to a really useful discussion of some of the ethical consequences of this. Now, you start the book um, telling us straight up, um, explicitly, that the book is written from a pr- position of doubt about psychopharmaceuticals. And as we come to the end of the book, we come to a very straightforward, um, very frank discussion of some of the consequences Of this behavior, right? Um, So we've talked already a little bit about this, um, but I just want to kind of ask you as we come to the conclusion here um, if you'd like to talk a little bit more about it, right? This use of metaphor um, is, in a way that you describe it um, in the conclusion, a kind of deception. You call uh, Indian doctors who call psychopharmaceuticals mind food or "monkabar," right, plain liars potentially, and talk about the dangers here of, as you call it, fudging the difference between self care and the commodification of health in the form of biomedical drug taking. So there is a kind of position, right, an ethical position that the, at least see, it seems to me, that the final chapter is taking. So can you talk about that a little bit? For you, what are some of the most important lessons that we might take? Um, From this positioning and and from this study, in terms of understanding how to move forward um, and what the consequences of that might be?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, what I always had huge problems with um, the whole time I was uh, studying uh, things in India is this generalized assumption of the doctors that. Patients are steeped in superstition and uneducated. So it's something that pops up almost everywhere also where I would think that, you know, if you just did the proper ethnographic study in it, you would see that the patients, for example, when they come to a psychiatrist uh, and that they would present something like the belly. Uh, aches as as a key uh problem rather than saying Oh I'm sad or focusing on 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 their moods or, or on emotions that that's not from a position of uh of a lack of education or being some kind of country bumpkins who cannot express themselves but uh you know if you would delve deeper in it, you would see that. You know, why the patients have this idea that surely a biomedical doctor will not be interested in listening to them talk about moods, and of course they could do it, and all of these things. So it's this generalized sense among the doctors that I uh, I found very problematic that the patients are somehow, you know, just illiterate and and uneducated. And they're taking this notion also to their uh, patient's understandings of of medications and somehow always assuming that they will not be able to understand. There's no point in trying to explaining anything. Uh, You're just running into all sorts of obstacles. And so that the very best way is just to fudge it, you know, if it really if you even have to explain anything because most of the time the doctor would just write a prescription and not even bother to um, explain anything about it and why, you know, this particular mind food uh, metaphor you know, on the one hand I think it's absolute genius uh, of the doctors uh, to use it but at the same time it also creates a lot of uh, potential problems and one of them is Um, about, you know, maybe creating in a patient's mind that yeah, this stuff is like food and as I uh, also explain in in the book where um, there's this very strong culture in just sharing medications in Calcutta for example so you would have uh, there's a family meal and uh, at the end of the meal um, you would just have a basket of medications being uh, passed around and uh, you know these would be most of the time might be prescribed but very often they would just be not be prescribed they might have just been bought over the counter and then people would say oh try this you know for that and if you have a notion that well these drugs are just uh, mind food, then uh, people might get started on on drugs that, uh, you know, are actually really, really bad for them and they have even no idea. This is actually one of the things that really also got me started with this study in the first place, um, which is, you know, I, I got going with this research on um, for example fluoxetine fluoxetine is the you know the the sort of stuff name of uh, the, the, the the active ingredient of uh, prozac so it's that uh, term so Prozac is the brand name. The US brand name, and then in, in India, uh, you know, since it's all generics, there's a whole proliferation of brand names. And um, But fluoxetine is the substance. So I kind of went to Calcutta and uh, I met up with old friends, and uh, they asked me, So oh, great uh, that you're back. Uh, so, what are you going to study uh, this time? And I said, Oh, I'm really interested in, um, you know, in these antidepressant drugs that I heard about from uh, uh, North America in particular. Oh, okay. So what's what kind of what, what is that? Oh well, there's one, for example, which is called fluoxetine. And then uh, one of my friends said, ah, well, I'm, you got this all wrong. Fluoxetine that's not that's not an antidepressant. I'm on fluoxetine for the past five years, um, and uh, I'm taking this, but it has nothing to do with um, depression. And in his case, it was that he went to a doctor and uh, he said that um, he often has problems sleeping through the night, basically, mm-hmm. and uh, the doctor just uh, gave him this prescription for um, fluoxetine, and he's been using this ever since, and he was absolutely convinced that it absolutely has nothing to do with depression. So there's, there's basically uh, millions of people running around in India who are actually prescribed with antidepressants or various kinds of psychopharmaceuticals and who don't even know anything about them. They they don't even know that what they are taking would generally be classed as psychopharmaceuticals. Now there's also... Uh, a lot of arguments that you could make that really, uh, you know, one should judge these drugs by what they do rather than by how they're classed. And I mm-hmm. uh, take that on board as well. So, so that Bloxatin might in the end actually not, might be misclassified as an antidepressant. And there's a very good argument that the whole notion of an antidepressant is actually misleading. so I, I am I'm fine with that as well. but still I have a huge problem with so many people in India being prescribed these drugs uh, that are, you know they've been diagnosed by a GP most of the time uh, as having some kind of mental illness basically and they're taking these drugs and they don't even know about it and I think that when the psychiatrists are using this language of moner kabar and, and mind food that it's just sort of Perpetuating that kind of notion of the illiterate uh, patient, and you know, systematically uh, keeping them in the bar- dark about something that they should really know much more about. So that's why I, in the end, sort of say, well, as ingenious as as it is, th- this is a very problematic thing, and it would be probably much better if uh, the patients would be taken more uh, seriously, and not that they were given any prescription that, um, on the assumption that, uh, no one needs to explain it to them, um, you know, because they wouldn't understand it anyway. And another, uh, irony in all of this is that, you know, the way that, uh, the psychiatrists are advertising, um, 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 these drugs as, as monocabar, as, as food. Uh, for the mind uh, and rebalancing uh, the mind, and also you know the notion that they're having of what these drugs do in in the body are based on this idea that there is uh, that there are um, neurotransmitters and they're uh, communicating with each other with these uh, 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 sorry that the neurotransmitters are the way that the brain communicates chemically uh, between the synapses and uh, that's what this drug uh, Prozac does is sort of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So, it kind of modulates the uh, reuptake of these neurotransmitters in in the brain effectively and that's how it actually works. When (laughs) It's been uh, proven more or less conclusively since the 1970s that this is not how the drugs work. So the doctors are accusing the patients of being kind of uneducated, and at the same time, they're perpetuating uh, a model of the drug effects, which in the z- proper scientific l- literature is even discarded. And I think that is also just uh, highly problematic.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Stefan, thank you so much. And I think it's probably very clear um, to listeners that a lot of what you just said and the kinds of concerns raised by these assumptions and these problematic equations are very much um, applicable, right, or, or instructive for us to keep in mind as we think well beyond the case of these doctors in Calcutta and, and sort of more broadly to um, the environment we're all living and working and making our choices about what to put into our bodies and how to think about and metaphorize our bodies in, right? So, Stefan, there's a ton of uh, material that we haven't had a chance to talk about, right? The book is exceptionally rich, and we only just scratched the surface. But given that, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners that we didn't have a chance to talk about?
0: Um, well, I would like to, you know... Generally, I think what would be important to me is to find ways also of making ethnographic work uh, more relevant to policy interventions as well. And uh, one of the things that I've been frustrated by for many years now is, for example, how the entire strategy of the World Health Organization when it comes to global mental health is also, um, you know, based on – a lot of assumptions that are not necessarily based on the actual research in the uh, localities where uh, all of these policies are then supposed to be applied. And, um, you know, one of the big things that I've been trying to bring out is, for example, that, uh, you know, this image of India as a place where, Uh, no one is really using these drugs or that that, that there's this huge treatment gap, um, as the WHO calls it, that's, you know, what the Indians and everyone else in the developing countries are really suffering from is this lack of proper uh, treatment. And in my opinion, you know, this is based on a real oversight of just how much is going on in the private sector entirely off the radar of the who and uh in you know just how incredibly widespread um these psychopharmaceuticals actually are and they're not being used necessarily in the government sector that's true but they're being used by all sorts of private practitioners and um you know to see policies being formulated on on the assumption that surely we need to basically bring antidepressants to India, just seems to be uh, so wrong-headed to me. And it's this kind of thing about, you know, what can you uh, contribute as an as an anthropologist? And of course, uh, you know, in my engagements with people from that side, you know, you often hear, oh, well, it's also interesting what you found in Calcutta, but it's still just anecdotal evidence, isn't it? So it's, uh, mm-hmm. does that it really count? And I think that, um, you know, I hope that a book really uh, that sort of shows all the nuances and how the drug manufacturing interacts with distribution, with how, people's understandings are based on that, the impact of marketing. All of these things actually come together to uh, create something that, you know, you can't really call that anecdotal, <laughs> although so much of what, um, you know, so the individual bits of them, of course, they're anecdotes. But, uh, you know, I think uh, and I hope that the sum is, uh, is greater than the, the parts of it
1: isn't that interesting itself sort of thinking about how we describe metaphorically or not phenomena uh, more broadly and like how as we call certain ways of making an argument anecdotal um you know that sets up a particular kind of expectation whereas you know i think more and more where we are right now as uh, people who study things and try to understand things broadly is you know we've moved away from haven't we any kind of assumption that of, you know, kind of universal explanations and universal knowledge and comprehensiveness and toward more of a model of curation and juxtaposition and constellation and sort of moments and, you know, as a way to understand and sort of generate arguments. And so if you call it anecdotal, it seems like, um, well, and it's, it's merely anecdotal, whereas if you call it, um, you know, something else, like moments and episodes that are illustrative of a larger phenomenon, it's, you know, you're describing the same thing, but just the terms that you use have uh, set up very different expectations. So I think the insight, um, is what I'm saying, the insight that you're bringing to the um, use of and the description of pharmaceutical, psychopharmaceutical drugs is an insight that we can extend more broadly to understand even how work like this is discussed um, and what the consequences of that are. So speaking of work like this, um, now that the book is out and congratulations and I've kept you way too long um, to talk up and thank you for your time. But um, could you say just a little bit about uh, what you're working on now, now that the book is out, what's currently inspiring you and um, what's next for you?
0: Well, I've just completed uh, fieldwork for a new project, which uh, I'm doing with colleagues from the University of Chicago, and that's on um, basically the rollout of various kinds of health insurance schemes in India. So, mm-hmm. so far, you've had uh, basically just the opposition of uh, the government sector on the one hand and private sector uh, hospitals uh, on the other and uh, middle class and richard People abandoning uh, more or less the government sector. And if you can pay for quality healthcare in the private sector, basically you do it. And the choice that uh, poorer people have is basically either you're going to go for uh, the government sector or you also pay out of pocket for. Uh, private health care, which then made a lot of families fall into poverty and creating an awful lot of um, financial problems. So what has started to change the landscape in India uh, quite a bit now is the rollout of these schemes which allow people to uh, go to private hospitals um, and get the money Uh, covered by, you know, up to a certain uh, point by these these, uh, schemes, which are ultimately paid by the government. So the government almost sort of saying, well, we realize that the government hospitals are not doing everything that they're supposed to do. And we recognize that uh, often there's better care to be had in the private sector. And we are supporting that. And it's a very fascinating, um, but also extremely paradoxical uh, situation that's uh, emerging. And uh, I've just been really interested in all the uh, problems also um, that are emerging uh, from this. So for example, that. Um, the schemes would pay a a good amount of the costs that people are incurring. But um, when they go to a hospital, um, there's a lot of other costs that are not covered by the schemes. And so, you know, part of the whole... Idea of making people to go to a private hospital without falling into debt and without incurring huge financial expenses uh, is, is, is sort of almost uh, annihilated by you know all of these hidden costs that people didn't realize uh, would uh, come their way when they would actually go to a private hospital. So that's one um, uh, project that I'm uh, more or less uh, finishing off, and another project that I'm preparing for is, um, really taking this whole interest in psychiatry, uh, back to Germany. And, uh, because I realized that, um, which is, and, and you as a historian, uh, m- might be really fascinated by this as well. There's, you know, in the history of psychiatry, Germany has a very prominent place and some of the founding, People like Emil Kraepelin and Griesinger and so on. You know, it's sort of the, the emergence of modern psychiatry is often very much sort of seen as as somewhere in, uh, in in Germany, or definitely that it had a major, major role to play. And so, in the history of psychiatry, Germany has this uh, this very prominent role. And at the same time, there's absolutely no current social science research on. Uh, the practice of psychiatry in Germany whatsoever I mean it is absolutely astounding, and I only realized this just recently you know when I was going on about uh, how little has been written about uh, psychiatric practices in India, you know and uh, oh there's only uh, two articles, this and that, you know and to actually realize how incredibly little there is on on germany was uh, was a real shock, and at the same time, I thought, oh this surely someone has to do something about that and um i think uh one of the attractions also of uh, thinking about uh doing a project in germany is you know we talk so much about metaphor and you know i want to be able to push this work with language at the subtleties of expressing yourself even further. And I think that uh, I'll be able to do this much better when I'm uh, in Germany and and German is my mother tongue. And uh, I think I'll, and I hope that I'll be able to do certain things in, in the research, also drawing on archival sources and doing a little bit of historical work, if you want, uh, that wouldn't be, you know, would be far harder for me to do that uh, in Bengali, um, where uh, in the language that I've worked in um, so far. So that's the kind of next project that I have in mind.
1: Well, best of luck with that work. Both of those projects sound awesome. I'll look forward to reading them. And thank you again so much, Stefan, for making time to talk with me today. I really appreciated it.
0: Thank you, Carla. It was an absolute pleasure being on your show.